Amen. Y'all let them know how much you appreciate them leading us this morning in worship. Always blessed by them. You know, make sure you pat them on the back. Really encourage them, man. Most of them are here around 7 to 7.30 in the morning. They stay all three services, so we're super blessed by them. Well, you got your Bible with you? Say amen. All right, Ephesians chapter 6 is where we find ourselves, so go ahead and open that up if you will. This is the last message in the series on spiritual warfare, and I've absolutely enjoyed uh, having the opportunity just to teach on this, but you know, as you kind of open up your Bible, let me just ask the question, you know, what have we learned about spiritual warfare so far together? Well, one major thing that we've learned is that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, our problem really is not people. So if we're wrestling against people, then we're fighting the wrong battle. The scripture says that we wrestle against the devil and all spirit rebels who have been cast out of heaven. And they are currently strategically situated to tempt you and I to sin. And sin really is just having a lack of love towards God or towards other individuals. That's why we've been drawing this little graph for you over the past couple of weeks. And um, if you're a guest of ours, by the way, I don't normally draw this well, all right? So just kind of letting you know. But ultimately, the enemy is seeking to attack our relationship with God. He does not want you nor myself to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So he gets after that relationship. He wants us to become lazy in our Christian walk, maybe push prayer to the side, push away our devotion to the Lord. So he seeks to attack that particular relationship. But he also seeks to attack our relationship with those at large, those who don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And then he also, and we get all these out of the book of Ephesians, he attacks our relationships in the church. And so the enemy does not want the church to live in unity. A church unified is a church that glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Jesus is lifted up, he draws people to himself. And so the enemy doesn't want that to happen in any church. So he attacks the church's unity and uh, he'll attack our relationships with one another. So we've got to be ready for that. And then he also attacks relationships in the home. We talked about husbands and wives and parents and children, etc. All of those out of Ephesians chapter five, as well as Ephesians chapter six. And then he also attacks our relationships at work. So we talked about employees and employers. Now, the enemy ultimately does not want the love of God to be represented here upon the earth. And so he goes after all of these relationships. That's why I like to say it like this. Spiritual warfare happens in the context or the realm of relationships. Now, not long ago, I, I read a book called The Screwtape Letters. It's written by C.S. Lewis. He's the same guy who wrote the uh, book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And uh, Screwtape Letters uh, wasn't as popular as the other book that I just read, but it is a phenomenal uh, book. Screwtape is actually a demon. All right, now I'm going to tell you this is not a real true book. This is a fiction book. But what C.S. Lewis does is he actually writes uh, this particular book to describe what it's like for demons to have conversations with one another. And Screwtape is a demon, and uh, he's actually mentoring his young protege by the name of Wormwood. Those are some good names, aren't they? And so Screwtape writes all of these particular letters to Wormwood, and they're all found right in this particular book. It's a phenomenal uh, little book there to kind of give you an image of how it rolls out. But Screwtape writes to Wormwood and says this, he says, my dear Wormwood, I note with great displeasure that your patient, that is the person that Wormwood is supposed to tempt, he says, I note with great displeasure that your patient has become a Christian. And then he goes on and writes another letter to him not long after that, and he says, my dear Wormwood, 
I'm very pleased by what you tell me about this man's relationship with his mother. You see, his relationship with his mother was not good. There was a, an attack in the home between a son and his mom. And Screwtape says to Wormwood, I want you to press your advantage in that relationship. See, you see that picture of the enemy seeking to attack our relationships. Now, I'm pretty confident that you don't have a specific demon who is out to get you, but there is absolutely no doubt whatsoever that there are demons who are strategically organized to tempt you and I to sin. And sin, as I mentioned before, is ultimately a lack of love to God or a lack of love to others. And so he goes after us. That's why we've got to wear spiritual armor. And that's what Paul the Apostle does. He describes spiritual armor in Ephesians chapter 6. Now, what was interesting in my study is I began to ask the question, how do I know if I'm wearing the armor if I cannot see it? I mean, it's spiritual, so I can't see it with my naked eye. That's what's uh, led us down asking specific questions that correspond with particular articles of the armor to determine whether or not we have them on. Now, from last week, let me just kind of give you a quick little review here. The first question that we ask in the throes of spiritual warfare is, am I being influenced by what is true? Uh, that describes putting on the belt of truth. Gird up your loins with truth, Paul says. The second question is, am I doing what's right in God's eyes? That describes the breastplate of righteousness. And then the third question is simply this, am I living gospel-centered? That describes the gospel shoes of peace. So not only am I seeking to share the gospel, but also am I seeking to display the gospel in my relationships with others? Am I treating others the way God has treated me through the gospel of Jesus Christ? So those are the first three questions. Now, what I want to do this morning is give you three more questions which correspond with the last three articles of the armor of God. I give you a statement and a scenario here at the end of how uh, this has actually helped me in my own walk with the Lord over the past couple of weeks. So hopefully that will be beneficial to you as well. So Ephesians chapter 6, you got it there in front of you. Say amen. And uh, let me get you to stand with me in honor of God's word this morning. Uh, Y'all got it there in front of you. Say amen. I mean, y'all got to help a brother out up here. I'm preaching, man. You know what I'm saying? Jason, you got your Bible open? Amen. That's my brother. All right. Verse 13, the Bible says, therefore, uh, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod the feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And then notice 16 and 17, in addition to all of this, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am also an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Let's bow together. Father, we do thank you for your word this morning. And God, I'm just asking that uh, you would allow the truth really to uh, rain down upon our lives this morning. And God, I pray for every uh, follower of Jesus in the building today and just ask that you would allow them uh, really to discern how to put on the spiritual armor so that we're fighting the proper battles while we're here upon the earth. 
And Father, I just pray in Jesus' name that as we learn how to put on the spiritual armor, that it would drive us in our prayer life to draw near to you and learn how to pray in such a way that we really do grip your heart. And ultimately, Lord, I want to pray today that you would grant grace to those who have not received you by faith yet. And Lord, for anybody in the room who's never given their heart to you, God, speak to them and draw them close. But just as we sang a moment ago, the word of God, speak. Let it pour down like rain, washing our eyes to see your majesty. And Father, we'll give you glory for it. And that's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. And everybody said, amen, amen. So you go ahead and be seated this morning. So jot the questions down, all right? Three more that I give to you. This very first one, just jot it down like this. Am I trusting in the Lord alone? Am I trusting in the Lord alone? Now notice with me verse 16. The scripture says, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all that flaming arrows of the evil one. Now, keep in mind, when Paul the Apostle is writing this letter, he's in jail. He actually mentions it there towards the end of the letter that he is in chains. And while he's in chains, he has Roman guards overseeing him. So he sees Roman guards day in and day out who are dressed in battle array. So as he looks at their armor, he begins to talk about the spiritual battle, and he says we should be wearing the same thing spiritually so that we defeat the real enemy of our lives. And so he begins to talk about the shield of faith. Now, what is the shield? It was a large oblong shield covering a great part of the body. In fact, it was wrapped up in leather. It was uh, soaked in water so that ultimately whenever they would go to battle, if a flaming arrow came and hit it, it would extinguish that particular flaming arrow. Now, as I study this and begin to look at this verse, I ask the question, what exactly is the flaming arrow? What are the flaming arrows that the enemy throws towards us? And the way that I kind of began to study that was look at what the opposite of the shield of faith would be. So what's the opposite of faith? And then I just began to jot them down, right? The opposite of faith is fear, it's doubt, it's worry, it's anxiety, and it's unbelief. Fear, doubt, worry, anxiety, unbelief. All of those are flaming arrows sent by the enemy to interrupt our relationship with the Lord as well as to interrupt our relationship with others. If you think about the shield of faith, what is faith? And I love this. Faith is a full confidence in God's ability and strength to care for you. Faith is you uh, providing all of your trust, leaning it all to the Lord, and finding your safety and refuge in Him and Him alone. So imagine for just a moment the flaming arrows of the evil one. Worry, doubt, anxiety, fear, unbelief. When the enemy shoots these towards us, how do those flaming arrows interrupt or mess up our relationship with God? Well, it's pretty simple. If you just think about worry and anxiety for just a moment, whenever you live in a state of worry, did you know you are living like an atheist upon the planet? An atheist is an individual who lives as if God does not exist. So if you're a child of God and you're walking in worry and anxiety, you're living as if the Lord does not exist. To me, it makes great sense why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, 
He says it to the disciples, and I love this. He says, do not worry about tomorrow. What's he describing? He's describing one of the flaming arrows of the evil one. The enemy wants to fire worry and anxiety into your life. So he's shooting at you all the time. And Jesus says the way to fight against that, he says, don't worry about tomorrow. Your heavenly father knows all that you need. So what is Jesus saying? When the arrows come to your life, when worry is there and you are tempted to fall into that sin, what you must do is lean back and put your total trust in your heavenly father. God knows what you need. He knows what I need. And he is a God who cares for his children. And so you've got to fight against the enemies uh, as he begins to shoot those arrows against your life. And you fight by putting up the shield of faith. But also know that the enemy uh, loves to fight against our relationships with others using the same thing. Worry, doubt, fear, unbelief, anxiety. For example, Paul the Apostle writes to Timothy, his young protege. And as he writes to Timothy, he's trying to encourage Timothy to exercise the spiritual gifts that God has given to him. In fact, Paul says, you've got to fan into flame the gift that the Lord has given to you, which indicates that for some reason, Timothy was not using his gifts the way he should have been. And then Paul says, in the exact same context of fanning into existence the gift uh, that God's given to him, he says this. And I want to see if you can kind of fill in the blank here, all right? Uh, he says, God did not give you a spirit of fear. All right, let's try it again. It's fear. Y'all weren't very good at that. All right, so uh, God did not give you a spirit of fear. Where does that come from? That fear comes from the enemy. And Timothy had been shot by a flaming arrow. And what Paul says to Timothy is, listen, uh, God did not give you that spirit of fear. That spirit of fear is interrupting not only your relationship with God, but also your relationship with those in the context of the church. Because of his fear, he was not using his gifts in a way that would build the church up. And so Paul writes him and says, fan it back into flame. God didn't give you the spirit of fear, but I love what he says. But he gave you a spirit of love, right? That's the very next word, love. Now, what is love? That's what we're to express to God. How do we show that we love God? Well, we serve him. How do we show that we love others? Well, we serve others. So what Paul is telling Timothy is don't let fear interrupt your relationship with those in the context of the church. Instead, love them unconditionally. And as you love them, you will discover that you begin to exercise your spiritual gift so that the body is actually uh, matured. Now, with that in mind, think about your life for a second because I thought about people at Concord as I was uh, looking through this text. Uh, how many people at Concord have said, I would love to serve but I just don't feel worthy to serve. Or how many people have said, I would love to serve in the body of Christ, but I just don't feel gifted to serve. Now, what is that? Some people even say, I would love to serve, but I'm afraid to, right? I'm afraid of what would happen. I'm afraid I wouldn't do a good job. What is all that? Those are flaming arrows that are shot directly at your life to keep you from expressing your love for God by serving others and to keep you from serving those in the context of the body of Christ. And so the enemy tries to get you to doubt. He tries to get you to fear. But what does the Bible teach us? 
The Bible teaches us, and you can just think about the belt of truth. Uh, Am I being influenced by the truth when I receive those particular arrows into my life? No, you're not. If you're a follower of Jesus, the Bible says you have been gifted to serve in the body of Christ. As soon as you came to faith in Jesus, the Spirit of God took up residence in you, and he gave you a spiritual gift to use to help everybody in the body of Christ mature in their faith. So listen, if you are there and you are doubting that God can use you, or maybe you think to yourself, uh, basically thoughts of fears, like I'm afraid to serve. Listen, if that's happening in your life, you need to know that is a spiritual battle. The enemy is attacking your relationship with the Lord as well as your relationships with other individuals. You see, worry, fear, anxiety, unbelief, and doubt, they all go after our confidence in the Lord and the Lord alone. I love what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 17, 17. He says, uh, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. And check this out. And whose trust is the Lord. David prayed in Psalm 25, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O God, in you I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. The psalmist shouted in Psalm 91, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Listen, you and I together today need to realize that the enemy is firing out these arrows in our life. And the only way that we can stand against them is by asking the question, am I trusting in the Lord and the Lord alone? Is my confidence in him? And whenever you have your confidence in the Lord, listen, that is when you have the shield of faith up and you are actually warding off the enemy's attack upon the relationships in your life. All right, y'all ready for question number two? Say yes. All right, so jot this one down. I love this one. Am I anticipating his deliverance? Am I anticipating his deliverance? So look at verse 17. The Bible says here, and take the helmet of salvation. Uh, Now, very quickly, uh, that's what we're going to talk about, the helmet. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. You put a helmet on so your head don't get hurt. Can I get a witness, y'all? That's what the helmet's for. But here, Paul the Apostle describes it as the helmet of salvation. Now, as I began to uh, study this and really look at this, uh, there are some who argue that this is the moment you give your heart to Christ, but I don't think that's the case. Uh, Matter of fact, why would you ever take the helmet off? Why would you need to put it on if it were your salvation day? What is this? What's interesting, whenever you study, uh, Paul the Apostle actually speaks about the armor uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 8, specifically the helmet of salvation. Listen to what he says. He says the helmet of salvation is the hope of our salvation. The hope of our salvation. In other words, he says there is a helmet for the follower of Jesus that actually means when we put it on, we are looking with full anticipation of Jesus coming and saving us. Now, very quickly, what is this speaking of? And so everybody's on the same page. Y'all still with me? Say yes. Salvation is described in the New Testament three major ways. First of all, it can be described as I have been saved, right? So you're justified. The moment you give your heart to Jesus, uh, that is justification. Saved from the penalty of sin. That's a past event. And then the Bible also describes the fact that we are being saved now. And we are being saved every single day from the power of sin. And then the scripture speaks about the fact that one day we will be saved when Jesus comes for us from the presence of sin. 
So whenever you put on the helmet of salvation, what you are doing is you are living with full anticipation that Jesus will give you deliverance over the power of sin today and the presence of sin in the future. So it is a hope out in front of us. It's living with the end in mind. I love what Psalm 68 and verse 19 says. I read this in my devotion not long ago. It says this, God is to us. Are y'all with me say yes? Because this is an awesome verse. God is to us a God of deliverances. Did you hear that? A God of deliverances. That is a plural term. In other words, we're not just delivered from the penalty of sin. We're delivered every single day from the power of sin. And one day we'll be delivered from the presence of sin. One commentator said, the helmet of salvation is that great hope of final salvation that gives us confidence and assurance that our present struggle with Satan will not last forever and we will be victorious in the end. We know the battle is only for this life and even a long earthly life is no more than a split second compared to eternity with our Lord in heaven. So think about this. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 3, 5 that the devil is a great tempter. He has tons of experience and will, like a lion, stalk out his prey. And whenever he finds an opportune time, what the enemy wants to do is actually tempt you, as well as myself, to fall back into old patterns of sin. And so whenever you begin to put on the helmet of salvation, what you're doing is you are anticipating the deliverance of the Lord in that particular moment. You're believing the Lord to actually give you gracious power to overcome the temptation. So whenever you're struggling against sin in your life, whenever you're suffering in the flesh against sin, you know what you're doing? And this is pretty awesome. Paul says, uh, I want to know the Lord in the power of his resurrection. And then he says this little statement, and in the suffering of his flesh. I want to know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. What is the suffering? The suffering is when you and I fight against sin's temptation. When we fight against the enemy and we do not give in to the desires of our flesh, that's us fighting. That is our flesh suffering. So it's not only talking about suffering literally physically for following Jesus, but it's also talking about suffering spiritually in following the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you think about it this morning, we endure the struggles with our old nature, fighting against the urge to respond to others with hate or unforgiveness. We endure the struggles of our old nature, fighting against the temptation to become lazy in our relationship with the Lord. We endure the struggles of our old nature, fighting against the temptation to give up on God's call for our life. So we are seeking to endure. As I was studying this, I thought about a, uh, a workout on the treadmill, which I don't do. Y'all with me say amen? But I've seen people do this in the gym. They get on the treadmill and they run like crazy people. And many of them kind of have a time limit, right? They want to work, run a certain amount of time. Anybody do this? Would you just please slip your hand up? I'm just trying to see if anybody's awake. All right, so three of you, you're like, I do this. All right, so anyway, they run on the treadmill. Often they have a time in front of them, right? And uh, many uh, run and they kind of think, I want to run for 30 minutes straight, right? So they get on the treadmill, they take off, they're running uh, as hard as they can. So, you know, about five minutes into it, they're kind of starting to sweat. They're breathing hard. Ten minutes into it, their heart's about to pop out of their chest. Their eyeballs are going sideways. Uh, they're sweating like crazy. Fifteen minutes rolls in. Uh, then what happens? You begin to hear these little voices in your head, don't you? When you're running on the treadmill, it's like, why don't you quit? 
why, would you, why are you doing this to yourself? What are you doing? Stop. Right? But what happens ultimately whenever they begin to run and they have those doubts or those questions hit their mind as they look down at the timer. And then can you imagine they see 28 minutes, right? 30's the max. So what do they say to themselves? I only got two minutes left. And they haul, they haul, they haul. They go as fast as they can till that two minutes is up. You know what Paul the Apostle is saying? When you put on the helmet of salvation, you're reminding yourself that you are running a spiritual race. You are in a fight. You are in a marathon. And the enemy wants you to get off of the race track into the ditch. And the enemy's trying to tempt you and pull you away from that. But you're racing, you're racing. You just look back down and remind yourself that your life is but a vapor here upon the earth. That you are here only for one moment and then you are gone. And whenever you remind yourself, I don't have much left, that reminder really pushes you to continue to endure, to not give in. That's putting on the helmet of salvation, anticipating his deliverance from the power of sin now, anticipating his deliverance from the presence of sin when he comes for you. Amen on that? All right, third question, jot it down. Here it is. What word is the Holy Spirit giving to you? What word is the Spirit giving to you? Look at verse 17. The Bible says, And the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, the sword was the offensive weapon of a Roman soldier. Paul describes the sword as being the sword of the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is uh, within every single follower of Jesus. And the Spirit of God equips us with the word of God to fight against the onslaughts of the enemy. Hebrews 4 and 12 says, Your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Paul notes as well in verse 17 that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Now, obviously, you look at that term, the Word of God, and what does it make you think of? It makes you think of the whole Bible, doesn't it? But what's really going down here when he says word is he's using a Greek word uh, for word, which is rhema, R-H-E-M-A, right? That's transliterated. So rhema is the word. But what does that particular word mean? It means this. Check it out. It means a specific word, a specific word. As I studied that and looked at it, I thought, that makes sense, man, because you think about Jesus when he was tempted in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. When he went into the temptation and the enemy came and tried to tempt him to sin, he didn't quote the whole Old Testament. He quoted a specific word. He said three times, it is written, and then he gave a word. Where did he get that from? Where did that come from? Listen, the Bible says in Matthew 4 that the Spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. And the Spirit of God is the one who supplied Jesus with a specific word to fight against the enemy in the moment of his temptation. And you and I as followers of Jesus will receive a specific word from the Holy Spirit who lives within us, equipping us to overcome temptation in our lives. Now this means that you and I have to be serious about studying the Bible. We need to take God's Word and look at it for what it is. It is the sword of the Holy Spirit. And you need to take the Word of God and put it down into the war chest of your soul. And then when temptation comes, the Spirit of God will reach into the war chest and He will give you a specific word to fight against the enemy. Which, by the way, eyeball to eyeball, think about it, right? Have you in your life as a follower of Jesus ever had a verse of Scripture just pop up out of nowhere? What's going on there? It's the Spirit of God giving you a specific word. And if you're not real sure why that verse is in your mind, you hang on to it, bro. Because the enemy's coming and the Spirit of God is supplying you beforehand for the fight. Sword of the Spirit. 
It's an awesome tool. That's how we overcome the enemy as he comes against us. Now, if you think about this, just jot this last little statement down here. Uh, Prayer is what keeps us dressed for the battle. Prayer is what keeps us dressed for the battle. You look at verse 18 in your Bible. Y'all got it there in front of you? Say, yeah. All right, so with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. I'm an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming I will speak boldly as I ought to speak. You know what Paul's doing? Paul is saying this. Listen, if you really want to fight the spiritual battle, you want to put on the spiritual armor, you do so through prayer. So as you pray, get dressed for battle. And not only pray for yourself, but pray for other believers. Paul even says pray for me, doesn't he? He says, I'm going to go and share the gospel. Pray I have boldness in doing so. Why is he asking them to pray for him? It's because he knows when he goes to share the gospel, he'll be on the front lines of spiritual warfare. Because 2 Corinthians 4 says that the enemy has blinded the eyes of unbelievers. So whenever he says, pray for me that I'll have boldness, what he's doing is he's saying, listen, I'm going to go to fight. I need people who are praying for me, who are dressed as well. They are ready for battle. Now, as I begin to kind of uh, think through this, how this works in your life and how it works in my life, uh, I began to use these six questions over the past couple of weeks, actually three, because I've had them for that long. So I'm using them now in my prayer life, but I'm using them specifically whenever the enemy attacks me, when the enemy tries to tempt me uh, to not love the Lord the way I should or not love others the way that I should. But one of the temptations that comes to me and I thought, okay, this is, everybody should be able to see this, all right? So the enemy whispers into my ear every once in a while, uh, your ministry is worthless. You ought to just quit. All right, so that's something that comes into my ear. I'm not trying to tell you that so you'll feel bad for me. I'm just telling you so you'll see how I put on the armor. All right. So that particular statement, and I think that one's coming to my mind over the past couple of weeks because I've had several pastor friends call me over the past couple of weeks who have said uh, they are uh, on the verge of quitting ministry altogether. Uh, I read an article uh, from churchleaders.com that actually said, check this out, 1,700 pastors quit the ministry every single month last year. 1,700 in America. 1,700 quit the ministry every single month last year. Peter Drucker, if you've never heard of him, he's a leadership guru, management guy as well. Uh, He he said that the four hardest jobs uh, in America are these. He said being the president of the United States. I didn't understand that. He said also being the uh, president of a university. He said being the CEO of a hospital. And then he said a number four uh, is being a pastor. (laughs) I just said all that so y'all realize I got a hard job with all you people. You know what I'm saying? But I'm I'm looking at that, I'm like, good night. I mean, Peter Drucker, he wasn't a pastor. I mean, why did he say that? But then if you begin to look at all of these who have quit the ministry just this past year, it's because the enemy is attacking their relationship with the Lord. Then he was attacking their relationship with those in the church, often in the home. So when this happens to me, the enemy says, uh, your ministry is worthless, you should just quit. Uh, I've got to begin to pray, okay? So how do I pray? First of all, I'll say, Lord, uh, am I being influenced by what's true? Like, is this true, right? So I, I, I dwell on that. I talk to the Lord about whether or not that is true. Uh, secondly, I say, Lord, am I doing what's right in your eyes? That's the breastplate of righteousness. In other words, Lord, am I, am I doing what you've called me to do? Yes or no? I mean, Lord, am I, am I being faithful to your calling in my life? That's the prayer that I have. 
And then third one, am I being gospel-centered? Am I sharing Jesus? Am I making sure that I'm treating others and displaying the gospel to others? Right? Am, I, am I treating others the way you've treated me through the gospel? Am I being compassionate, forgiving, patient, loving? Am I living that way? That's, that's me. Am I living gospel-centered? That's the gospel shoes of peace. And then I begin to ask, okay, Lord, am I trusting in you and you alone? No one else but you. And then I go on and say, Lord, am I anticipating your deliverance? Am I anticipating you delivering me from this temptation? Am I anticipating your return from me? And man, when he comes back, don't you want to be faithful? And then I ask the question, is there a specific word from me in this instance? And the Lord has given me this word many times, but it's found in Galatians 6 where the Bible says, do not grow weary in doing what is good. For in due season, you shall reap a reward if you do not grow weary. See what just happened? I'm praying, seeking the Lord, putting on the armor, and then I am applying his word to the enemy. That's how you fight the spiritual war. That's how you fight the spiritual battle. And I know good and well, there are some of you in here today, you've been tempted to quit serving the Lord. I tried... Not going to do that again. Do you think that's not coming from Jesus? It's the enemy, man. It's the enemy. Are you being influenced by what's true? Are you doing what's right in God's eyes? Listen, are you living gospel centered? Are you trusting in the Lord? Are you literally putting on the helmet of salvation, anticipating his return? Are you receiving a word from the Holy Spirit? And if you're like, I, I'm not receiving a word, well, get in the scripture and say, Holy Spirit, give me a word. He will hook you up every time. I think about um, the disciples whenever they were hanging out with Jesus, and Jesus said to them, he says, all right, fellas, I'm pretending to be Jesus right now. Y'all with me? And here are the disciples. Disciples, uh, y'all watch and pray. And then Jesus went up on the mountain, he began to pray. Then the Bible says he came back not long after that. And what were the disciples doing? Sleeping. So he wakes up. He's like, Can't, wake up. Can't y'all pray for a little while? Pray. And then he goes back, comes back. What are they doing? Sleeping. My great fear is a lot of you are sleeping. Yeah, you're just sleeping. Sleeping on the Lord. Not growing in your relationship with the Lord. Not saying, Lord, how do you want to use me to impact the kingdom of God? You're just taking a nap. Some of you sleep while I preach. You do. I've just gotten over it is what I've done. I know who they are. I can't help them. Whatever's true, Lord. Some of you are sleeping this morning. That's it, man. You haven't fought the spiritual battle because you've given up. And I'm trying to tell you, don't. Don't do it. Don't grow weary in doing what's good. In due season, you'll reap a reward. If you don't grow weary. Amen on that? All right, let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, help us apply it to our hearts. Your heads bowed, your eyes closed this morning. Uh, if you don't know Jesus, listen, God created you to know him. Sin separates you. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's standard. The payment of our sin is death and hell. So that's what you deserve for your sin. But God graciously, unconditionally loved you. He sent his son Jesus to die for your sin. You should die, but Jesus died in your place. He was buried and rose again. The scripture says if you'll turn from your sin and place your trust in Jesus, uh, you can receive him this morning. You'll be forgiven of your sin. You'll know him as a God who delivers.
So if you've not responded to him, would you do so this morning? Just say something like this, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need you to forgive me of my sin. I need you to give me a new life. Help me to turn from sin and place my trust in you. That's what I'm doing today. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, if that's the prayer of your heart, first step of obedience is baptism. Uh, we'll celebrate that next service. We'd love to set up an opportunity for you to be baptized. So I'm going to invite you to walk forward during this time of invitation. When we all stand up to sing. You come on down. I'll be here in the front. Others as well. We want to pray for you and help you along in your walk with Christ. Or secondly, God may be calling you to join this church body. If that's the case, we'd invite you to come as well. But most of all, man, I just hope you'd be serious with your relationship with the Lord and determine whether or not you're just kind of snoozing, sleeping through the whole thing, missing out on what God really has for you. And if you are, wake up, man, wake up, wake up. Father, the invitation is yours as always, so we pray that you would work. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. While we sing, you come if God's calling you.